Hey everybody, you're listening to the Good Lion Podcast. This is Aaron Salvato, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. We are about to get into the third and final part of our Negative World series. And before we jump into the episode, I've got to say, I think it might be good to explain what this series is about, because we are thrilled to say that we have had kind of an explosion of new listeners lately. We've got about a little over 2,000 more people than usual listening to the show lately, which is incredible and we're so blessed by. So if you're a new listener and you haven't listened to part one or two, you should stop and go back and listen. But if you're not going to do that, give me a minute and I'll break down what we're talking about today. So in a nutshell, we are talking about a framework of thinking through what is going on in culture called the negative world. This was a framework developed by a guy named Aaron Wren, and in it he talks about the idea that the culture is rapidly shifting towards hostility towards Christians, which if you're a follower of Jesus, you might be experiencing right now. All of these episodes were recorded before the Roe versus Wade decision, and I can say that for me personally, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, it's been a long time since I've seen so much hostility towards Christians. The culture fundamentally disagrees with Christians on many things, like the right to life of the unborn or human sexuality. And so there is a lot of conflict going on in these moments, which makes me think that this series is kind of coming at the perfect time. So I'm excited for you guys to get into the content. These three episodes have been an ongoing conversation between myself, Pastor Mike Doyle, who pastors Movement Church in New York City, and of course, my co-host, Brian Higgins. In part one, we talked about what the negative world is, the ways that the culture is shifting, the need that Christians have to adjust their tactics to address what's going on, and how it's important for us in the midst of all this to not fall into the American Christian persecution complex where we just say, woe is me, we're under attack, the world hates us, instead of actually saying, okay, how can we adjust to this negative world and figure out how to reach people with the gospel. Part two, Mike Doyle gave us some framework for how we can respond to the negative world, and he called us to a really interesting concept, the need for us as Christians to return to the fundamental foundations of our faith. Prayer, scripture reading, discipleship, mentoring, studying theology, community, all of these core things that we take for granted. Mike did a really good job in part two of helping us understand how important it is for us to return to these things and hold these things dear if we're going to survive the storms to come. We also talked about how there's this debate about whether or not Christians should be winsome or not, whether we should fight the culture or whether we should try to reach the culture through kindness that leads to repentance. I think you'll enjoy that conversation. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to part two. But for part three, we are going to be talking about the reality of mission drift. Mission drift is when you have a mission that's been assigned to you, but over the course of time and trials and tribulations, you start to shift course and all of a sudden you're fighting for something that you were never supposed to fight for in the first place. We'll also talk about the reality of political extremes on both the left and right and the need for wisdom to survive these moments as a Christian and to hold on to our faith. 
I'm really excited for you to hear this content. I actually just got a message today from a young man who's a guy in ministry, a follower of Christ, and he let me know how much this podcast has blessed him, how it's helped him to rethink how to be a committed Christ follower in the midst of all of this cultural chaos. I'm so blown away by that. I'm so thankful for that. He actually said in his message that you guys helped me to not negatively deconstruct my faith, but to actually focus on reconstruction and building back something stronger and tearing down some of the cultural things that got slipped into my faith that didn't belong there. Like I say, often the termites that get in to the house and so often deconstruction, right, is burning down the entire house. But no, we're called to remove the termites, to get rid of the things that don't belong, the things that Jesus never said, the things that aren't in scripture and are just brought in by culture. And instead, we build the house back up stronger. That is so much at the heart of this show. That is so much what we're about. And it just makes me so excited to get these kind of messages. If this show has blessed you guys in any way, please go over to our website, goodlion.org and leave us a message in our contact form. We'd love to hear about how this show is helping you. It encourages us so much because Brian and I uh, don't do this full time. Uh, A lot of the times we're just working in our normal day jobs and answering emails and doing administrative stuff, you know, just normal things that people have to do. And and sometimes we can lose sight of the impact that is happening. So when we get these messages, it's so encouraging. It's so helpful. So please send us some encouragement. Okay. Um, now, uh, on to the show, we are going to jump in at the start to pick up a conversation between Brian Higgins and myself about Mission Drift. And then from there, we'll go on to talk to Pastor Mike Doyle. Thank you for listening. We hope this blesses you and equips you and gives you strength and courage to face the current world we find ourselves in. You're listening to The Good Line Podcast. If the idea is winning people over to Christianity, if we give up that altogether, we've given up evangelism, we've given up outreach, we've given up the method by which the kingdom of God grows. If we do that, we give up the mission of God himself. And we can't abandon that mission. And that's that's what I'm afraid of sometimes is like, I feel like going back to that idea of a positive world, right? It was like this idea of America as the kingdom of God, which is not biblical. America is not the kingdom. Germany's not the kingdom. England's not the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom. It's a multi-ethnic worldwide family of God. And let me just be clear. I love our country. I'm so thankful for our country. I'm so blessed to be here and to be a part of it. And I believe for us here in America, just like everyone in every country, we're all exiles in Babylon, right? We're, We're called to be a witness here to as best as we can work for the good of where we're planted. I I believe in all of that. There's nothing wrong with patriotism, with a love and affection for the place that you're planted and a desire to see it flourish. There's nothing wrong with that. That being said, when you view the country you're in, like for us in America, when you view it as something that it's not, when you view a secular nation like it's this offshoot of the kingdom of God. What ends up happening is for a lot of people, we start to see this subtle mission drift 
where no longer is the main focus the teachings and the ethics and the mission of Jesus and the gospel, but it becomes things like American exceptionalism or defending the Constitution or honoring the founding fathers. There's all this other stuff baked into it. And listen, there's there's merits to all of those things. There's merits to the elements that went into the founding of the country, but you can't let it take the place of Scripture and Jesus and the gospel. Because what will happen is you will move from a place of saying, instead of I need to defend the truth of the gospel, I need to go out and reach the lost and preach the gospel and bring people to Christ. The mission drifts to, I need to defend my country from secularists. I need to defend my conservative principles. I need to defend all of these other things. And and this becomes dangerous. You see this on both the left and right. People elevating their political opinions and their ideas of the best way to do the federal budget or what should we do with guns or whatever, you elevate it to this place where it's of the same importance as the gospel. This mission drift can cause people to be more enthusiastic about preaching the good news of Western civilization or American exceptionalism than the gospel of Christ. And that's a problem. Which in my mind leads me to... We're talking about the drift from the positive world to the neutral world to the negative world. By that, meaning a positive perception of Christianity to a neutral one to a negative one. We haven't even touched on whether or not the world was right. Hmm. What do you mean? Maybe the world has been right to think a little bit less of the church recently. Hmm. Maybe as we've done this kind of mission drifting, by not hanging on to what really matters most, by not making sure that we are truly gospel-centered, by making sure we're not truly mission of God focused, maybe we have become less useful. I mean, you it's funny because we do the same thing in two different directions and we don't recognize we're doing it. Hmm. We will say when we're talking about the church that the church is less on fire for God than it was 60 years ago, that the right. church is less fervent in their dedication to Jesus. Hmm. And then we also say the world has gotten worse. The world has gotten more anti-God. The hmm. world has held on to a lesser view of Christians than it used to hang on to. And we never think maybe one caused the other. Hmm. We never think that the two are related at all. It's we've happened to drift and somehow the world happens to think a little bit less of us. And maybe there's more connective tissue between these things than we're giving credit for. And so I look at this and say, if there is a negative world out there that views Christianity in a less positive light than it used to, we have to at least ask the question, have we given them good reason to do so? Yeah. I mean, right now at the time of this recording, the big story out, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but you know, it's all the stuff going on with the Southern Baptist Convention where... You know, the, there's been a report about how there's been tons of sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Church, and there's been a lot of covering it up. And anytime that kind of stuff happens, my non-Christian friends will post something on social media where it's like, look at these Christians that lecture us about sexuality, and this is what they're doing. And yeah, we can sit back and be like, well, not all Christians, and we can try to defend ourselves, but we have to understand there are reasons for the cultural perception and, and shift. As our culture and as the internet connects us, as our culture becomes much more aware 
of negative things going on in the world. And it becomes much easier to report stories of corruption and abuse and all of these things. And not just the church, but in every institution. We should not be surprised that the more that stuff gets on the radar of non-Christians, the more negative perception they're going to have. And to some extent, I mean, it makes sense. Like I grew up with a very negative perception of the Catholic church because of all the abuse stories I heard back then. Right. And so, and I'm a Christian, right. And, and, and Catholics are, you know, there's this connection to Christianity with Catholics. I'm just saying for me as a Christian, I grew up with that perception because of what I heard. We shouldn't be surprised that negative reports about Christians being abusive, abusing their authority, abusing their people, abusing their power is going to produce this result in the culture where they look at Christians and they assume, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I would suggest the burden is now on us. And it always has been right. Like the burden has always been on Christians to show the world who Jesus is and what he's about. And when I say that, I say it because the person who placed that burden on us was Christ. I'm not saying culture placed that burden like, oh, we're capitulating to the culture and we need to win them over. I'm saying that is the burden that Christ gave us. Go into the world and make disciples. That's not going to happen unless you show you, you make some effort. And and too many churches, I feel, are focused more on the people who are sitting in their pews donating and tithing, and they want to say what makes those people happy as opposed to making any effort to actually reach anybody outside their doors. Yeah, I, th- I think it will always be the burden of those trying to do what's right to make up for those who have done wrong. Mm. I have never cheated on my wife. Good. But... <laughs> That shouldn't be, a, that, that's not like a bragging statement. That was supposed to be like the baseline where it's like, yeah, of course. Right. But cheating exists in the world. Yes. So I need to not just tell my wife like, well, yeah, come on, you know that I don't cheat. Like that should be enough. Hmm. But in a world where cheating exists, faithful husbands need to not just assume that their faithfulness can be taken for granted. Yeah. Because the world is filled with unfaithful people. Same is true with Christianity. Hmm. There are a lot of people who have done terrible things under the name of Christianity. And so it will fall on those trying to be true representations of Jesus to pick up that slack and carry that burden. Hmm. And it's also important to note, I don't do this perfectly. I had a conversation recently where we were talking about how if Christianity is really true, then what do we go to work for? What do we do all this other stuff for? Why aren't we just telling people about this all the time? Yeah. And my response to some extent is because I'm selfish and because I'm not a perfect representation of Jesus. And I rest on the fact that my imperfect representation of Jesus does not change who Jesus is. Yeah, true. That is what I think Christians need to get back to hanging on to and get back to showing the world. If we're waiting for, if only the perfect representation of Jesus was out there, then people would believe that's never going to happen. We're never going to be the perfect representation of Jesus. We can work towards it. Hmm. We can keep trying to do better, but there has to be something beyond if only our strategy was right, then people would get saved. Yeah. And, and I feel like it goes back to the whole conversation we've been having on the show about apathy it's not an excuse to just be apathetic and be like, oh, I'm never going to be perfect. Like, so why even try? It goes to this idea that we need to not platform and elevate ourselves to a position of seeming like we have it all together. I think, and I talked about this in the episode we did with uh, Nick Katie, but I think what the world is actually craving from the church is radical 
humility. I've been told by several people that are non-Christians that the Christians that they actually will listen to are the ones that don't act like they have it together, but are actually humble and honest about their own struggles. And that makes them perk up because they're like, whoa, I struggle with that. I have that same emptiness. I self-medicate in that way. And this Christian here is telling me that they also struggle with it. They're being open and honest, but then they're also talking about the hope that they have in this person named Jesus. Like that, that is something that is interesting to the world. I want to just bring up this idea of what I call low effort resistance, because I think that we're, we're talking about strategy, right? That's been the whole conversation of, you know, we got the negative world. What is the strategy for the negative world? Uh, I don't know what the strategy is for the negative world. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Maybe over the next couple of years of the show, we'll solve the problem. Probably not. But I can tell you what I think is not the answer. And but what I think so many people turn to. And that's what I would call low effort resistance. One thing that discourages me often in the culture war is what I would label as low effort resistance. And what I call this is the Babylon B approach. Here's what I mean. So here's what happens. The culture attacks Christians or Christian ideas or simply believes something that goes against what Christians believe. And Christians respond to it simply by mocking secular people. And that's why I call it the Babylon B approach. They, instead of critical thinking, deep conversation, engagement, it's, it's just, I'm just going to post a meme that says, look how stupid and backwards secular people are. And everyone in the comments likes and says, yes, they are that way. And, and here's the thing. I totally think humor and sarcasm has a place, but my issue is with the sheer scale that I see Christians engaging in this approach to whatever the topic of the moment is. Like take, for example, the whole thing with Leah Thomas recently, you know, she's, she's a swimmer. A trans swimmer used to be a man transitioned to a woman and now wins the national championship. And the majority of response I saw from Christians on social media to this event was mockery, memes, jokes, mocking Thomas and mocking liberals for creating a system where this can happen. Let me be clear. I believe there are two genders. God created men and women. And though people are born intersex at times, those people exist and they should be dealt with differently. They are a fractional minority. And so we as Christians should be clear on gender and transgender issues and affirm biblical sexuality. But my question is, what are we accomplishing through mockery? All we're doing is patting ourselves on the back for being right. How does that actually help the unsaved? I like that question. What are we accomplishing? Because the thing that I also see in this is, yes, transgender issues are important to be able to talk through today mm -hmm. and biblical sexuality is worth affirming. Yeah. But I don't think we're ever going to get somebody from meme about a trans swimmer to Jesus rose again and now you should believe in him. Mm. Like it is such a separate thing from the gospel that it starts so far from where the finish line is. It sets us up to have to traverse so much more territory before we can bring people to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the gospel speaks to issues of gender. Like if you believe the gospel, there's baggage that comes with it. You believe that there is a God who has an order and a way of life and a, and a way of creation that he set into motion. You can't just believe the gospel in a vacuum. You have to also look at the Bible and it comes with it. But <laughs> You're not going to get people there. Like, here, here's honestly what I think. I think the social media is the public square of the day. And if 
non-Christians see us just sitting around mocking them all the time, like we're not going to make any progress. And it's hard. Like I can't change that. It's it, This podcast isn't going to make that go away. Christians will continue to mock non-Christian people through memes. I think that like there is room for, I think every Christian, you know, who's a theological conservative should have other theological conservative friends they can vent to about how bonkers the world has gotten. And you and I have done that. But like we're not going to take that to social media and make that our thing. Our thing is trying to win people to the gospel. The church isn't perfect. Like, you know, I fully expect to see some mockery, but why is that so often the overarching response? I'd argue it's a lazy, low effort response that is rooted in self-righteousness. It's the Pharisee mindset of, Lord, thank you that I am not like them. And just to use the whole trans example, what if when these situations happen and it's the news story of the week and everybody's talking about it, what I would love to see is what if the church responded less with memes, less with mockery, less with passive aggressive rants about how culture is crumbling and the the world is crumbling. What if we responded with training Christians on how to reason with their trans friends and family and have hard conversations that have a balance of truth and love? What if we pointed people to resources from formerly trans Christians who repented and now walk with Christ? And what does that look like? And understanding their point of view and perspective. What if we teach people how to actually understand what trans folks are going through so we can better witness to them and lead them to repentance. And, you know, Preston Sprinkle just wrote a book about that. That is fantastic. Yeah, just, I mean, this is where I would, you know, I think let's close down the conversation here. We've talked for a while, but I just don't understand the attack on winsomeness. I understand the attack on the whole like enculturation idea. I don't think that we should assimilate into the culture and be buddy buddy with the culture. I think as Christians, we should be freaks. But I also look at Jesus as the one who was known as the friend of sinners. And it's like, I don't think he got there by mocking them. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that if we want to go to an example that we can pretty easily point to as a negative world, it would be the early church in the book of Acts. And preachers throughout that book stood really firmly on hardline truth. There was not a lot of wiggle room around whether or not Jesus was real. There was not a lot of wiggle room around whether or not sin was sin. But one of the great themes through the book of Acts is important, meaningful teachings, beginning with, here's this thing that you're thinking about. Let's start here and walk slowly to Jesus with gentleness and with love. So it seems like the early church lived in a negative world and did not think what we need to do is be really harsh and bombastic. Mm. They expected a negative world to not fully understand them. They expected a negative world to at times be hostile. And every time they encountered hostility, they faced it with love, with Mm. respect and kindness. And they lived out what Paul said in Romans chapter two, that it was God's kindness that led us to repentance. And so our display of God's kindness can also lead others to repentance. I couldn't agree more, Brian. Thank you so much for bringing your perspective to the series. And now to finish things out, we're going to turn things back over to my discussion with Pastor Mike Doyle. Here's my conversation with Mike. We have to get back to discipleship and that, and that kind of whole right. life, Christian worldview discipleship. And that's how we respond to negative world. Mm. Negative world is, is a comprehensive counter worldview to Christianity. Right. 
And so then what we have to do is we have to build people who are strong in the Christian worldview. And Christianity, it's, it's, it's muscular, it's robust, it's rich, it's deep. Every one of these issues has been thought through by someone a hundred times smarter than you, you know, you or I right. are. <laughs> and, there's, and they've been wrestling with these issues for thousands of years. And, 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 and all the resources are, are available there to help build strong Christians who can hold their own in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile right. against them. So, so yeah. my, I agree with everything you just said. My fear and this is what I want to address because I think it's it's a fear other people have too, you know. And you're you're in New York, so you could probably answer this question for us. But how do you avoid a situation where the goal shifts from getting the gospel to people and discipling people into the way of Jesus, and instead shifts to discipling people into a conservative American worldview? I, I read a book, and one thing that you pointed out that was helpful was if you're in like Soviet Russia you know, and you are doing street witnessing and you convert a socialist leftist guy to faith, once he accepts Jesus, he doesn't instantly become a conservative capitalist, you know? So, so my question for you is if you're discipling somebody and you get somebody into the way of Jesus and they're committed, they love Christ, but maybe they've got some more leftward proclivities. And so they're critical of capitalism and you try to sit down and explain your view to them. And they're just like, yeah, Pastor Mike, I don't see it that way. Like, I actually think that some form of like democratic socialism is actually going to be more helpful. Like, how do you, what do you do when you get to that point? Is, does it become a dividing issue where it's like, well, now I'm kicking you out of my church because you're not a capitalist. I, I, I know the answer is probably no, but I'm just, I'm just getting into the weeds here. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, it's like, no, I would never, ever kick them right. out of my church of if, they were, if they believe socialism more. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> and like, no, 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 no yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, here's honestly the thing, Aaron, is like, I, I, I believe in diversity of opinion. Mm. I want diversity of opinion. I don't want everybody to think the same at my church. You know, I highly value, mm. you know, freedom of thought, freedom of opinion. I don't want, I love, I love the intellectual diversity of New York City. I love the intellectual diversity of my own church. You know what I mean? And I don't, it's like the hill, for me, the hill to die on is Jesus. That's the hill I'll die on. I'll die on, Jesus is the hill that I'll die on. And, and I think it's kind of like, you have like primary, secondary, and tertiary. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know how you say fourth, maybe quashiary or whatever. And I think, you know, the, all the issues that we're going to, the issues that I'm going to emphasize are, you know, are the primary and the secondary. Now, just, just if some young person wants to get coffee with me and they want to bring up that topic, I can, I can share my perspective on it, but I don't think it's synonymous with the gospel. Right. And, and it's not a gospel issue. It's not even a Christian faith issue. It's just more like just helping people, helping young people think through the world or think through how they understand economics or understand how they, how they understand the right. world. And that's more of like, it's almost like take my pastor Mike cap off and just like, you know, you know, Mike, the politically conservative <laughs> person helping you understand, you know, right. these and, perspectives. And, but, and, you, and you create a culture in which you actually, you, you can fully disagree with me on this. Yeah. You can't just, you know, there's no range of disagreement on the divinity of yes. Jesus, but there's. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. You have to draw those but, lines. And, and I also think that something we should do too with people is when it comes to ideology, a lot of times it's a lens, whether it's left, whether it's right or, or libertarian, you, you, you put it in front of everything and it's how you view the world. And I think that for us as pastors, what we need to do is we need to help, you know, we, we, we all have our own pet ideologies that we think are the best way to run the world. Right. But the kingdom of God ideology needs to take precedent over that. And yes. then beyond that, yes. what we need to do is we need to shepherd everybody, not to just say, you have to think like me. And if you don't, you're out. 
we need to recognize there are like, I have Christian friends who lean more liberal and I have Christian friends who are libertarian. And I talk to them and we have different ideas about the best way to run the world. But what we have to agree on is sin. So, you know, if I'm talking to a capitalist young person and they're getting really into the philosophies of someone like Ayn Rand, who believes greed is good and you should only look out for yourself and you shouldn't show kindness to anyone unless it benefits you in some way. Really, it should all be about your own gain and you should step over other people to get what you want and achieve your goal. You have to look at it from a Christian lens and say, yeah, I can agree with you that, you know, I think capitalism is a system that works, but you're taking it so far that you're pushing that lens. It's overriding everything Jesus says about service and kindness to others. And you end up getting so deep down that rabbit hole in favor of this far right version of capitalism that you failed to love and show generosity to others. And you're just hoarding your wealth. And that's a sin. And same thing. If you're talking to somebody who's more on the left and all this and 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 they're like we just need to burn everything down you know and light every building on fire and just destroy everything it's like where do you see in the scriptures the early church doing that they were under oppression by rome this wasn't even a marxist thing that they literally were under oppression by rome were they trying to set rome on fire no nero accused them of setting the city on fire but really, I mean, it was him, right? But no, Christians were spreading the gospel. That was how they were trying to dismantle the evils of society. It was through the gospel getting in and convicting people's hearts and causing change that way. Does that make sense? It's like we just need to steer everyone away yeah. from the extremes of their different ideologies while respecting that some people might have different views on how to how to run the world best. But we need to push all of like whether it's you know, racism or police brutality, whether it's money and the, the economy, like there's all of these different ways we can think about things. But in all of those categories, you can go f so far down the ideological rabbit hole of the world that then you, what you come up with ends up being opposite of Christianity and opposite of Jesus. But then you try to baptize it and claim that it is the gospel when it's not. Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, even if you think of like, sometimes like people, kids who are drawn to deconstruction or people, it's just, they never, they, they never felt free to have honest conversations about things that they mm. wrestled with. You know, they didn't feel free yeah. to have a contrary. They didn't, they didn't feel free to be able, they weren't in an environment where it's like, you want to create, you want to create an open environment where, you know, we can, we can discuss things and we can work issues through and, and you can express doubt or you can say, I don't understand this issue and we don't crush you or we don't, push you out or we don't, you know, block you at a church because you, you wrestle with something or you see something differently or you don't understand an issue. It's like, you need to, you know, we, we need to build that culture of, of healthy dialogue and, and let's, let's talk through these issues and, and let's understand them. And let's, and here's the thing too, is like the people who are coming to our churches, like, you know, it used to be like, like, like if you think with the boomers, right? Like the boomers, like they, they all went to church when they were little kids and then they did the hippie drug thing, you know what I mean? And then they came back to Jesus in their 30s and 40s and when they had kids, you know? But they all had that basic Christian foundation, right? So they weren't, you weren't starting at zero with them. You were starting at like, like plus seven or plus eight, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm Gen X and we were kind of like one or zero, you know? Now the young people that are coming into our churches are like negative six, negative seven. Not only do they not have even a baseline understanding of, of the Bible or the Christian worldview, but they, they're, they're, they've been, they're so far removed from the faith that, you know, it's, it's, it's helping them to like, like, like you think of like a place like New York city, like you always have to be able to define like, like, what does a win look like? Okay. <laughs> and, a place like, and, and a place like New York city, 
city, if you can get your typical atheistic New Yorker just to even consider the possibility that maybe God does exist, like that's a huge mm. win. Like that's a mass mm. win, you know? And so you have these poor young people that are coming in and it's like, you know, they've, they've never heard anything. They don't know anything. And no one's ever like taken the time to like have conversations with them, explain to them like, like what's a gospel? Mm. You know, like who's John the Baptist? Like what's the New Testament? Like what's the Trinity? Like they just, they don't, they don't have any understanding of any of those things. Mm. And I, I think I, I call it spiritual parenting. Like, like you get these young people and it's like, and I'm at a stage in life now where Gen Z is literally old enough to be my <laughs> children. And to me, it's just, it's just parenting. Yeah. It's like spiritual parenting where you're just sitting down and you're helping them think through all the issues of life. Yeah. You're helping them think through dating. You're helping think through marriage. You're helping think through children. You're helping think through how do you understand the political world? How do you understand your own personal finances? How do you understand the Bible? How do you understand the world? And it, it's discipling, it's spiritual parenting, and and you do it with, with, with a graciousness and you give people space to talk about things and express ideas and, you know, and, and talk things through and you create this loving kind of learning environment, this gracious learning environment where there's room for disagreement and there's room for confusion and, but we're going to help you think these issues through and discuss them and, 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 and I believe at the end of the day that, that, that the Christian worldview is, is the superior worldview. I think it yeah. will win. And I think that when people see the elegance of it and the beauty of it and the wisdom of it, they may, they, you know, they might reject it because they don't want it, but they're not going to be able to say that it's not, it's, it's not, you know, compelling. Mm. And it's so, good. and, and I think that there was, and there was a whole generation of young people that, that were denied mm. that they weren't discipled. Mm. Nobody sat down and had those conversations with them. Nobody explained the world to them. No one explained any of those things to them. And it's like, you know, it's like they talk about in colleges now where kids are showing up for college that don't know how to, they don't know how to write a paper. They're like not even ready for college yet. Yeah. Like, like they need, they need like, you know, and I think people are, people are starting the, you know, their adult lives and they don't even have some of the basic building blocks of what it means to be an adult or live their lives and, and how to think about things. And, and, and Christianity has always been a religion. It's always been an, an education based religion. Like Christianity has invented the universities. Mm. You know, we, it's, it's, it's part of the division of Christianity is we, we teach people and we, and we educate people and, and we help them think things through and we help anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, as yeah. much as I think it can be helpful to critique, you know, some of the negative things that have manifested into Western civilization, it's also really important to acknowledge that Western civilization was built on the back of Christianity. I heard one theologian talking about this, and he was saying that Western civilization is the thing that like all the deconstructionists and everybody who's, you know, anybody who would identify themselves as like, I'm a leftist or I'm a liberal, everybody likes to try to deconstruct Western civilization and critique it. But it's it's like the house that you grew up in, you know, it's the house that raised you. And same thing with Christianity, like this culture, America, the West, Europe, you know, has been largely a Christian culture. And it's like now we're in the phase of our history where everyone is sort of the rebellious teenager where you're looking at the house you're raised in and going, oh, I don't like any of this. And they're doing everything wrong, you know. So I, I thought that was a fascinating point to look at the roots of that. Well, it's like, yeah. it's like Tom Holland's book, Dominion, where Tom Holland argues, he says, like, he thought that he thought that the, the best values of Western culture, and he's an atheist, he thought the best values of Western culture came from the mm. Romans. But the more he looked into it, he's like, he's like, Roman culture was horrible. <laughs> yeah. like, he says, every, everything that made the West great was Christianity. Right. And that and that's Tom Holland, you know, and he's saying that that the the way we value the minority, the way we that's servanthood, mm. that that we have a culture of servanthood, and we have a culture of caring about the least, 
he says, those weren't Roman values. Those were actually Christian values. Mm. And that, you know, and, and I think, you know, again, you know, I, I don't feel like as a, as a Christian, I don't think my responsibility is, is to defend the United States or defend Western culture. But at right. the same time, we don't want to become apologists yeah. for things other than the gospel. Yeah, for the gospel. But it, but on the same token, we also we don't allow, you know, we, we, we don't just sit back and, and allow and just watch it, watch it be all torn down and burned to the ground. You know what I mean? But by, by people who right. really don't actually have a, a better alternative. I think that we're, we're to be a reforming presence in society, a renewing presence in society. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis says, he says, those who are the most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. Yes. And it was because William Wilberforce was so impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he, he, he advocated for the abolition of slavery within the British Empire. And so this incredibly amazing moment in Western civilization was actually the byproduct of a British politician's encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. You know? and so, yeah. And, and the, the biblical yeah. model that we get is this idea of exiles in Babylon. It's the church is not, we're not citizens of America. We're not citizens of Europe. We're not citizens of anywhere apart from the kingdom of God. That's our true heavenly home. But the biblical model gives us all these stories of guys like Daniel, for instance, where they're in exile in Babylon, literally. And yet the framework that the scripture gives us is stand by your convictions, don't compromise, but also try to be a blessing where you are because you're trying to point people to Yahweh. Like we're not to burn down Babylon because it's evil but we're also not to compromise with Babylon because it's easier. We're, we stand up for what's right, and then we try to bless everybody around us in the secular culture in order that they would look at us and say, there's something different about you, you know? So... Mike, just to wrap up this conversation, I wanted to talk a little bit about extremes and avoiding extremes and how do we pastor and shepherd people away from extremes. And I think your description of the both sidesism thing is helpful for me because, you know, I, I think we've done away with kind of the myth that to be against both sidesism means that you have to embrace one political side or the other or something in between and reject everything that the other side says. We're not talking about that. There's nuance, obviously. What we're really getting at here, what the core truth is, is that we should not be in between theological liberalism or conservatism. We should actually stand on a foundation of theological orthodoxy. So I, I want to get into the whole extremes thing. We talked in our conversation about the radical left being polarizing, and I would agree with that. You know, to be polarizing means to be divisive. And while I would say that not everybody who leans left or right is a radical, one thing I've noticed is that it's actually the internet that really reveals to us more and more just how many radical people there really are out there. Personally, I've been blown away as somebody who's spent time in these comment sections reading what people have said and trying to engage and dialogue with people who have a different perspective than me. I try to be open with them. I try to be kind to them and not write them off just because they identify one way or another. But in a few short years, I've heard some pretty radical things from people who have identified as more radically left. And when I say that, that's not me like accusing them or making assumptions that these are people who have actually said to me like, oh, yes, Aaron, I am a radical leftist. I'm not just liberal. I'm a leftist. That's their identity that they're expressing proudly. And so, yeah, I've just I've heard so many things I would 
classify as radical. Like one thing I saw from an acquaintance who identifies as a leftist is he was saying that Christians are white supremacists because they oppose transgenderism. So in his view, to believe that there are actually only two genders that God created actually makes you a white supremacist. In in my view, that would be a pretty radical belief. I remember another time I was reading through this discussion about this Netflix movie that came out that was sexualizing young girls and there was all of this media backlash about it. And I just remember in the comment sections reading through these discussions people were having where the people on the more conservative Christian side of the conversation were saying like, hey, this is wrong. Like, can we just agree this is wrong? And the more liberal people would say, oh, you know, it's art, it's expression. And the pushback was then, hey, in any other context, this actually is basically child pornography. Can we agree? Can we at least have a moral baseline that child pornography is wrong? And I literally, like, my jaw dropped. I read some of the more liberal people responding, and they were saying they couldn't admit that something like that was actually morally wrong. It just, it blew me away. I've had similar conversations, like, we talked about with people on the left where, you know, they're, they're, they, they would say there should be no limitations on abortion. You should be able to kill a baby up until the point of its birth, because that's a decision between you and your doctor, which I know you and I would drastically disagree with that belief. So my question for you is, as you're dealing as a pastor in New York with so many different varying levels of radicalness and people who have these these radically extreme views, how do you shepherd people away from the radical side of the left? How do you help people see the flaws in it? What is your approach? A couple of thoughts. One is like, you know, ra- radical leftism is basically a religion yeah. now. You know, what ends, up ha- what ends up happening is like, again, it goes back to the thing of like, you can't have, neutral world didn't last for very long. You can't have a secular middle ground because humans are fundamentally religious. And then what ends up happening, the danger is like, is, is when people become religious about their political beliefs, when your politics becomes your religion. Mm. And that is extremely dangerous, whether on the left or on the right, because people become crazy about their religions. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, like if you think of like extremism, extremism is not a problem. It's what are you extreme about? Like Mother Teresa was extreme, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> but she was extremely loving, extremely kind, mm. extremely self-giving. So it's not, so the issue isn't even fundamentalism or extremism. It's what are you fundamental, what are you a fundamentalist about or what are you extreme about? And so it's like, if your goal in life is to be extremely loving, then like that's actually a social good, you know? Mm. And so, mm. so what's happened with the radical left is that, and this is a danger. We, we should not be religious about our politics. We should like, you know, we, we, we should, you know, it's politics are important. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and then also it goes back to like, what's the role of government? Government Again, what ends up happening is, is like government takes out this when, when, when God isn't part of a person's worldview anymore. And then what ends up happening is, is government has to kind of step in and take the role that maybe God used to take in a person's life. If you think about it, like, like what is the role of government? And it's like, I think it's like, all right, roads, cops, firefighters protect us from people, you know, have a military to protect people overseas who want to hurt us. Uh, let's provide a basic public school education for children so they learn, they learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic. And, you, you know, you, you kind of create the infrastructure of life. Yeah. 
So I can just, I can live my life. I can go to the grocery store. I can raise my family. I can go to school. I can, I can make a living. I can save money. And they're there to provide kind of the structure for society. And then, but, but it should have, again, it's, it's actually a political position. You know, it's kind of like Reaganomic, you know, it's like kind of a Reagan view of limited government or whatever. But, but I just think of like, what ends up happening is, 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 you know, that's the danger is like, is, is, you know, whether, where, you know, is, is. When you become religious about, when you have a secular void, people become religious about their politics, and then politics takes out, takes on this this outsized place in people's it's lives. It's the role of God in people's lives. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the role of God. Your your faith is in like salvation comes through your party winning, you know, and 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 religious service comes through voting and activism. And trying to persuade people, you know, the apologetics, trying to convince people about why your political positions are right and wrong. And there's so much faith where it's like, if my party, does, and this is true left and right, if my party doesn't win the election, then the entire world is going to hell. And we're, we're doomed and yeah. we're lost, you know? It's a false gospel. Yeah, and then what ends up happening? Yeah, what ends up happening is like it's it, it's it's a cheesy cliche, <laughs> but I it's true is that is we all have a God shaped void inside of us. <laughs> and what ends you know what ends up happening is is you is you will fill that God shaped void with something, and then government takes the place that that God would mm. take. You know, I don't I don't find my my sense of safety and secure. I find my safety and security in 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 the Creator of the universe and in the sovereignty of God. I trust in mm. God. You know, I'm not like you know I, I looked I look to God to take care of me. I look to God to to provide, to make me feel safe and make me feel secure. And I think, but that's what ends up happening is, is, is people, and then, and then politics gets out of control. Politics gets, it gets, it's, everything is, every, every election is like, it's, it's, it's the end of the world <laughs> and it's do or die on both the left and the right. Because what ends up happening is, is it, it becomes political idolatry. And the Bible says, do not put your hope in men, yeah. you know, and what happens True. is we put our hope in men and, 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 and whether it's on the left or on the right, and it's a form of political idolatry and politics takes on this outsized role in everybody's mm -hmm. life. And then the other thing is, you know, again, and going all the way back to how do you shepherd people, you know, who, who have embraced, you know, radical left or whatever. It's again, it's just like, it's this, it's the slow work of that's what, that's my new term for it now. It's called slow work. I love that. It's like the slow work of, mm. it's, it's the slow work of discipleship. But here's the thing is like, you know, somebody has to do yes. it. You know what I mean? And it's like, somebody's got to do it. And it's the slow work of discipleship. And, and you sit down with somebody and, and this very loving, very conversational, very dialogical, you know, atmosphere, you say, let, let's talk about these issues. Okay. Let's think about them biblically. Let, let, let's, let's look at the history of this idea. Let, let's look at, has this, idea, has this idea been tried before? And, and what were the implications of it being tried before? And you know, it's just, it's being a spiritual parent. It's just like, it's just parenting where you, you're going to do that with your son. You're going to sit down and you're going to explain the world to your son. Mm. And you, he's going to go, dad, <laughs> why is the sky blue? And you're going to go, well, son, it's because when the light refra it refracts the atmosphere, it, you know, it diffuses every other color except the shade of blue. Dad, why is there a sun? And it's like, well, because we need the heat to keep our planet warm. <laughs> And what are you doing? You're going, Dad, why do we brush our teeth? Because our teeth will rot out if we don't brush our <laughs> yeah. teeth. Yeah, why do you, see yeah. what I'm saying? And yeah. it's, it's a form of spiritual parenting where you're just kind of like, you, you, it's a slow work of like helping people think all these issues yeah. through. And you, from a biblical standpoint, mm -hmm. and, but again, you have a whole generation that was neglected that. They weren't discipled. Yes. 
And they weren't, they weren't even discipled in a Christian worldview or a Christian frame of thinking or Christian ethics. Mm. But the upside of it, especially Gen Z, like Gen Z, like got nothing. I mean, they're like, they're just a neglected generation. Yeah. The upside of it is that they also don't bring a lot of baggage. You know, it's kind of like, like with my church, I'm like, I would tell them, I'm like, hey, we, we believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gift of prophecy. We believe in the gift of healing. And they're like, sounds good, Pastor Mike. Right. <laughs> There's no, you know, you can like, you have this, this wonderful opportunity to, to, to build good theology and you don't have to do the, the unpacking the bad theology or unpacking the wrong things they've learned, you can almost just start from yeah. zero. And from the very beginning, you can build very healthy theology, very healthy, you know, praxis and ecclesiology. I've experienced with Gen Z kids, which has been the majority of who I've ministered to throughout my life, is like, even like once you start talking in political terms, it becomes like a turnoff for them. I remember I was talking to one girl and I said something about the the left, you know, and not even like the typical way that a lot of conservatives do where it's like the left is evil. It was just, I just brought up the concept because some of the things she was saying was very in line with that worldview. And it kind of shut down the conversation. She was like, oh, Pastor Aaron, you're getting political. Like, I'm not, I'm not into the left or the right. I'm just, and it's because the ideology of the left has become the mainstream culture in a lot of ways. And so for a lot of young people, what is good and what is kind and what is thoughtful and what is good for society is framed through that lens. And so I try to take it out of that political language with them and just bring it to let's analyze each claim you're making, each view, and let's just go to scripture and let's see, is it true? Like, is it actually true based on what, what scripture says? And I think, you know, that's a good approach with it. The other thing with, with Gen Z also, it's like, where, you know, where they're coming from, it's like, it's just like, it, there, there's a sweetness there where it's not yeah. like... So I'll, I'll frame things sometimes. I'll say, look, I'm not trying to be mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I just watch them kind of calm down because there's a sweetness there where it's not like they just they don't want to they want to be kind. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. And it's like and they, there's, you know, there's there's, you know, that God is gentle. Jesus was gentle. You know, yeah. Now Jesus could blast the Pharisees and Jesus could turn the tables. But there was a whole other side to Jesus where he could be un, he could be incredibly gentle with people. Yeah. And I think sometimes the Gen Z thing is like, they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings yeah. and they, and they're, they're a very kind generation. They're a very like inclusive generation. Yeah. And so their, 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 their emotional intelligence is extremely high. Right. And it's just like, that's the thing about it. That was the shift I had with millennials is everyone's, oh, they're snowflakey. And I'm like, no, it's not that they're snowflakey. It's <laughs> just you. that they, thank you. They, they have incredibly high emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like my grandpa, yeah. <laughs> like I love my grandfather. I love my grandfather to death, but he was a greatest generation mm. guy. He had no emotional intelligence. Yes. <laughs> I'm Gen X, so I have like we have like a little bit of emotional intelligence, but we're kind of just like in, we're a punk rock kind of angry generation. Mm. And then the millennials had higher emotional intelligence than Gen X does, and then the Gen yes. Z has even higher emotional intelligence. Yes. The it, as a millennial, I can say emotional intelligence can be one of my greatest strengths, but also one of my greatest blind spots. And it can cause me to yeah. lean towards love, but not towards truth and law and gospel. And so there's always the need for that balance. And I would say the inverse of my boomer friends from what I've seen. Sometimes it's the law and, and, and all of that is the focus. And 
and there needs to be more love. And I think that the generations need to complement one another and help one another through that. And I've had so many great mentors that have helped me and, and point me, say, Aaron, you know, you're great on the love stuff, but you got to be more balanced. You got to speak the truth, you know? And so that's something well, I, I always I'm always working on. I always think of Chuck Smith. Remember Chuck said it, the hippies taught him love. Mm, wow. Remember? They, they taught him it's love. beautiful. And they taught him. It's I know. Beautiful. And I think, and I think that with Gen Z, what they're very, what they're teaching me is love. I love you it. Know? And, you, and you, you lead with love. Okay. So as much as this would be a beautiful place to end the podcast, uh, I could just imagine the, the, the nice music coming in and just us ending on happy thoughts of love. Um, <laughs> it would be perfect really, but I have one more question for you. Um, and it's kind of a yeah. bomb. This is like, this is something that I, I think is important though, to talk about. You've established yourself on this podcast as, you know, you and I are both theological conservatives. You, you've established that, you know, you, you are somebody where when it comes to your politics, you, you, you've a, you're a very conservative guy pastoring in very progressive New York, super hard. I think there's an important aspect of this where we're talking about radicalization and radicals and shepherding people away from radicalization. I think it's important and we need to talk about more is as much as there is, there is definitive evil on the far left. What about the far right, you know, and how do we as Christians shepherd people away from that? And, and I'll just qualify it with just a, a few things that I've thought through on this because, you know, personally, like I've, I feel there is a danger on, on only focusing on one side because I grew up in conservative Christian land and which I'm actually grateful for. <laughs> Whenever I talk about that, I hope people don't think I'm dissing it. I loved my private Christian school. I loved my teachers. I love my pastors still do. But, you know, I was in an environment where I was constantly reminded all the time about the radical left. And, and it was always, you know, here's what they're doing and it's crazy. And, and that's the environment I grew up in. And a tribe of conservative Christians who are constantly critiquing the left and their extremism. Weekly occurrence for me was the last 10 years, basically, is every time I get on Facebook, I can guarantee there's like this group of 10 guys I know where all they do is just post about the left and how it's wrong and, and critique it and point out different things. But what about like the radical right? And, and for me, like what I think of is like white supremacy in the sense of like, I'm not talking about white supremacy, like in just the vague, like overreactionary way of like, oh, you're, you're a rich white person. Therefore you're racist and white supremacist because there's minorities who are poorer than you. But I'm talking about like actual neo-Nazis, like the white supremacist marches in Charlottesville, you know, people carrying torches and chanting blood and soil. You know, I've spoken to Christians who've been radicalized and they believe that minorities are bad for our country and they're a danger. You know, it's this very broad brush mentality. You know, I, I remember seeing Q&A, uh, a, a footage of a Q&A panel at an event for Turning Point USA, which is sort of like a young conservative activist movement. And an audience member got up and asked the speaker, you know, when do we get to use the guns against the liberals? You know, when do we get to take our country back? Like when do we get to start killing the liberals? And to the speaker's credit, he shut that down. But that thinking is there on the far right. And for over six months now, I've noticed murmurs from people I know who have far right sympathies about the possibility of like a new civil war against the left and right. And there's like excitement about that. Like, oh, sweet. We get to, you know, like that stuff exists. And there are many of us who would consider ourselves theological conservatives and even social moral conservatives. But we feel in the current climate, we aren't allowed to critique the right without being branded as traitors. You know, I've spoken to many pastors who feel they, they fear being canceled by their own church. You know, I, you, you mentioned during the George Floyd thing, like having minorities in your church, black people in your church speaking their lived experience and perspectives. Like I know guys that have gotten canceled for less 
you know, preaching a sermon on racism with no CRT or any of that stuff and just a clear biblical anti-racism sermon, not even anti-racism in the terms of the culture, but like in the terms of like the Bible points us to not having these prejudices and they had half of their church leave. And so, so do you get what I'm saying? I'm, I'm just asking like, how, how do we bridge that gap and how do we shepherd people to not just be critical of the left, but to actually not allow the, the far right to come in as a Trojan horse if we have this mentality where it's like, oh, the right is our team. And so we're just accepting of whatever they have to offer because it's it's good and true. Does that make sense? I, I think it's important to talk about. So I'm just going to let you talk about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think of like, like you think of something like, like you think of like the state of California. Okay. It's like, it's 70% Democratic. Hmm. If you look at if you look at Orange County in the last congressional elections, it was, a, it was a, the last one, the one before. It was the first time. Like Orange County has always been a Republican county. It was the first mm. time in like the history of Orange County that it that that it went it went Democratic, both congressional mm. candidates. And so you think even like a classic place like Orange County, which was always you know conservative, Christian, Republican, like the the, the politics of Orange County has changed. Mm. And so what's going to end up happening, like if you're in a state like California, if you if your church says we're going to take this radical, you know, right wing position on everything, you're actually going to alienate yourself from almost three quarters of the people in the state of California. Yeah. Your mission and field. I think that the res- yes, the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ in California is to reach every single Californian with the love of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And you're going to alienate those people, and you're going to drive them away from Jesus, and they're not even going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel because you've already alienated them. You know, before they've even before they've even had an opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so you have to look at like like what's the role of the Church of California? Like what's the role? You know, is like. You know, it is, you know, or or you think of like a city like New York, it's like, I think it's about, you know, 90% Democratic or something like that, that that votes votes Democratic. And so it's like, if if a church comes out and has this open, vocal, like right-wing position, it's going to alienate itself from almost every single New Yorker. And they're not even, you're not, they're not even going to give you the opportunity to share the gospel with them because you've already, you've already driven them away. You've already alienated them. And, and you, and you've, and you cut cut yourself off from being able to share the gospel with mm. them. And I just don't, I just do not believe that that's the church's role in society. We should be seeking to win every single person to Jesus Christ. Jesus died for all 40 million Californians, regardless of, you know, their sexuality, their gender, their political beliefs. He loves every single Californian. And the goal of the church in California should be to win every single Californian to Jesus Christ. Mm. And I think, and I think if you go back and you look at like Chuck Smith, that was Chuck's heart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Chuck wanted to, people wanted to Jesus Christ. And then I remember Chuck said one time, he said something, he says, I don't tell them what they can or cannot do. He says, I help them fall in love with Jesus. And then when they fall in love with Jesus, they don't want to do those things anymore. They want to live a life that honors Jesus Christ. And so you have this kind of like longer view subversive strategy Mm -hmm. where like, if I win someone to Jesus Christ, you know what's going to end up happening? Once the spirit of God comes inside and begin to read the Bible, God's going to begin to change their value system. Like myself, like before I became a Christian, like I, I was, I was radically liberal. Like if I, if I hadn't become a Christian, like if I never become a Christian, like today, I'd probably be like, I'd probably be like an Antifa guy. (laughs) And then what happened was, is when the Holy Spirit came into my life and I began to read the Bible and I was, I believed in evolution. I was, I was atheistic. Holy Spirit comes into my life. I began to read the Bible and my whole value system Mm. changed. But if somebody would have like put the cart in front of the horse and said, Hey, you have to believe these things in order to be a Christian. I probably would have turned around and walked right out the door. 
Mm. But because, but because they preached the gospel and I heard about Jesus and I surrendered my life, I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with Jesus, not even believing the Bible was the word of God, Mm. believing in evolution. (laughs) (laughs) And then I gave my life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit came inside of me. And one of the first things I did, I was talking about this last Sunday at church is I, I didn't know what to do. So I just started with page one of the Bible, which was Genesis. (laughs) And I read the first three chapters of Genesis and it dawned on me, God made the world. And he created human beings in his image. And it was like, now, if you grew up in the church, you take that for granted. For me, it was like mind blowing. It was mind blowing that, that there's a creator who created the world out of nothing, created human beings from scratch, formed them in his image. It was just like, it was, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever read in my entire life. And so I think that, and the other thing thing, I think too, is that part of like, it's like, you know, part of what church is to be is church is to be in a a healthy escape. You know, when I, when I go to church, I want to hear the gospel. Mm. I want to hear about Jesus. I want to hear about how my sins have been forgiven. I want to hear about how, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be a better person. I can walk in victory. I want to hear about Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I don't, there's so much negativity that I don't want to go to church. I I want to go to church and I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the church should be like, like a healthy escape from all that stuff. You know, and then, and then, and then on the right wing, it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's people that are incredibly divisive and, and they're not, you know, our goal isn't, you know, we're not, we're not trying to add, we're not trying to add to the polarization. We're not, I don't want to pour kerosene on the culture wars. The role of a Christian is we're reconcilers. You know, we don't, we don't put up, we don't create fires or add accelerant to fires. Our goal is to put fires down. And, and, we're, we're to be and rebuild the homes that have been burned down. Yes. Mm. Our job is, is to stand in the middle. We're, we're to be reconcilers. You know, Paul says God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, ultimately, it's reconciling people to the Lord. But on a day-to-day basis, it's just like Christians, Christians should be in society. They should be, they should be a force for healing. They should be a force for reconciliation. Right. They should be a, a force for good, a force of love. Uh, you know, we're not bomb throwers. We, we're, we don't, we don't add to the polarization. We don't pour fire on it. We, our goal is we want to see healing. I don't, I don't want to see a civil war. I want to see our country healed. Yeah. The civil war, the civil war was horrible. 300,000 Americans died in the civil war. And Abraham Lincoln believed that the civil war was actually God's judgment on America for slavery. Mm. Read the second inaugural address. It's inscribed on the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And he believed that it was God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery. It was horrible. And so all these people that are like kind of quietly, gleefully hoping that there's a civil war have no idea what, 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 they, what they're asking for. It's terrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. And the, church in, the church's role in society is to win people to Jesus Christ, help them fall in love with him. We help, we help, we help people get free from addiction. We, we help heal broken marriages. We, you know, we help people get their lives together. We're to be a, a force, a reconciling force. And I also think that in terms of, I, I do not want to alienate people from Jesus Christ because of, you know, because of certain political positions or whatever, yep. you know, Jesus Christ died for everybody. And we want everyone to believe they can come to Jesus Christ. And then, and then we trust that, you know, and when you lead a person to Jesus Christ, the other thing too, it's like the classic thing of like, you can't, you can't expect, and this is, this is, this is a mistake Christians always get into is you can't expect non-Christians to live like yes, Christians. They so don't, true. They don't, they don't have the Holy Spirit inside right. of them. You know, it's like, that's not a burden you can put on them. You know, no. And then it's like, you know, like if I, if I didn't, if I didn't believe in Jesus Christ, my life would be radically different. I would be living a very radically different life than the life I live today. The life I live today is because I believe in Jesus Christ and he's transformed my yes. life. 
But if I didn't, but if I, but if I didn't think that God existed, if I thought that life had no meaning, <laughs> and when I died, yeah. I ceased to exist, bro, I would be living a very radically different yes. life. <laughs> I would, I would be indulging in every form of pleasure. I would be mm. an Epicurean. I would be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow mm. we die. And so when people are living that way, we we can stand on the sidelines and we can judge them, or we can say, you know what, actually they're they're consistent with the way they understand the world. And really, the bigger issue is helping them realize that no, actually God does love them, and God has a plan for their life, and they need to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Mike, this has been such a good conversation. You, you know, it's it's funny because sometimes I'll be talking to people who are very politically minded, and they'll ask me, you know, Aaron, are are you are you left? Are you right? Are you libertarian? Somewhere in between, and you know, it, it kind of reminds me of that story of Joshua, right, where the angel of the Lord is talking to Joshua, and Joshua asks, "Are you for us or are you for our enemies?" And he's like neither. Yes. (laughs) Which blows Joshua's mind. And it it blows people's minds today when you say, yeah, I'm not fighting for the left or for the right. And then they'll say, oh, so you're a centrist. And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, what the heck? Well, how does that work? And for me, it's not about some sort of centrism. It's about this attempt to have radical alignment with the kingdom of God yes. and the politics of the kingdom of God. Yes. It's sort of as if, you know, I was a spy from Russia or China living in America. And you asked me, you know, what side of American politics do you fall into? And so my answer is going to be honestly, neither. <laughs> like I'm operating completely for the purposes and goals of a different nation. And yeah, that can sound kind of nefarious using China and Russia as examples. But what I'm trying to frame is I am here on a mission for the kingdom of God. And so at times I'm going to say things that take off both sides of our broken, polarized political systems, but I'm going to fight for what I believe God says is true. Yeah. And that in my experience, just tends to confuse people where they've adopted this very narrow lens and system that says this side is always right and all of the politicians on this side are always right and always true and always good. It, it, it confuses people on both sides of the aisle. When you're willing to say, I'm not going to look to these politicians for my theology. I look to Jesus for yes. my theology, for my yes. worldview, for my ideas of the best way to run the world. And then I interpret all of these politicians through that lens. And I'll be the first to say, I don't do it perfectly, nor do I think I do it perfectly. But that's at least my goal. That's what I'm trying to do. At the end of the day, my goal isn't to try to bring secular utopia or religious theocracy through these broken political systems. I'm trying to get people saved. Yes. I'm trying to help yes. people enter into the kingdom of heaven where they can experience the perfect government, the authority, the righteous authority of King Jesus. And that's the thing that I find so compelling because often I talk yes. to left-leaning yes. people and there there's something that really strikes me where when I speak to them, they communicate that they they want a world that is righteous. I think their understanding of what righteousness is, is distorted. The secular right, the secular left have this same problem. 
But when I speak to these people, they're not sitting around asking, how can I be evil and disrupt the fabric of society? No, it's they're coming from this place of, I want to be kind. I want to be inclusive. I want to be helpful. I want justice. And so these people want a world without racism, without sexism, without violence, a world without rape or greed, corruption, abuse of power. And the thing about the gospel is that is the world that Jesus offers. Yes. The gospel offers yes. us a world, a new heaven and earth where all societal inequality and injustice will come to ruin and will be in this perfect society with no more sin and none of the evils that humans as a core understand are wrong. Instead of broken, flawed humans with their political systems of capitalism and communism and everything in between trying to fix the broken systems of the world, Jesus himself is going to fix the broken systems of the world and rule in perfect righteousness and authority and justice. Yes. And so what I wish is that those who identify as theological and even political conservatives would stop being like, oh, these stupid leftist idiots and start going, hey, no, like the thing that you're looking for, you're looking for in the wrong place. Come to Jesus. He has what you're looking for. Let me sit down with you and explain what Jesus is offering and how it is so much better than your political system or even my political system can offer, right? Like, I wish that we could have these kind of conversations and show the world the way that Jesus is so much better than the broken frameworks that the world offers us. Yes, secular utopianism is trying to have the kingdom of God without, without God. Without the king, yeah. And it just doesn't work. You can't have it. It's not like it's it's what every what we all want because we're made in the image of God is we all want the kingdom yes. of God. Amen. And we want that we want that better mm. world. And then you know that that and mm. but you can't have that world without Jesus Christ being at the center mm. of it. You can't have the kingdom of God without the mm. king. And that's what we have to help people understand. It's not what they what they it's not what they want is wrong. It's not the world that they envision is wrong. It's just they actually don't have a good theology of sin and they don't understand. You want to talk about something that's systemic? Sin is yeah. systemic. That's the ultimate the ultimate systemic problem with the world is 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 the systemic infection of mm. sin. And that has to be dealt with. And the only one who can deal with that is Jesus mm. Christ. And that was the problem that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand is that they they thought they didn't realize that their ultimate enemy was not right. the Romans. Their ultimate enemy was was their own yes. sin. And so you know, Jesus came to conquer their ultimate enemy, which was sin, and the ultimate fair and the ultimate fair Pharaoh wasn't Caesar, it was Satan. And so he came to defeat their ultimate, you know, the Romans and Caesar were just a symptom of a deeper problem and the deeper problem was sin. And he came to, to, to cure them from sin, to conquer their ultimate enemy. And I think that's the thing. It's like, you can look at these young people and you can go, look, I understand what you're thinking, but it, without Jesus Christ at the center of it, it's not mm-hmm. going to work. But the hopeful thing is there actually will come a day when Jesus Christ will rule and reign on the mm-hmm. earth and there will be a perfect world. And the, and the kingdom of God is what you're craving after. And it's a world with Jesus at the center. And when Jesus is at the center, everything works, everything fits together. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has their place. And, and that world is yes. coming. And that, and then you get into like, you know, it's, 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 it's now, yes. but not yet. It, the kingdom Amen. is here. We can, we can experience it now and we can, we can have it. We can have a taste of it now. And, and part of what the church is, is, is the church is to, it's a foretaste of the kingdom. The church is to, 
it's like a, it's a it's a sneak yeah. preview of the coming Amen. kingdom and the church should be a picture of the kingdom of god now with jesus christ at the center and then one day the kingdom of god actually will mm. come in that perfect world that young people are trying to find in secular utopianism will come when jesus christ returns and rules and mm. reigns on the earth <laughs> so good man so good i think that's a good place to end it there um really appreciate this conversation man this is so good i I love podcasting because it gives me the opportunity to like sit down with pastors for hours and have long conversations with them about these things. And I find it so helpful. And I, I think the audience does too. So thanks for sharing your perspective, man. Really helpful in weeding through this really complex issue. And yeah, I, I think, I think that you've given the, for those of us who want to adopt this framework of a negative world. And I think, I think it's worth considering for the audience. I'm saying it's worth rethinking the condition of the world. I think, Mike, you've given us a lot of ammo for how to approach that negative world and how to live in a way that is bold and yet balanced and focused on truth, but also love. You've, you've done a great job sharing all this stuff, man. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, it's an honor to be on here and uh, just love and appreciate all that you're Thanks, doing, Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.